Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. We're going to continue in this chapter, and I'm going to begin with verse 24. Hear now God's word. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge of the people with the oath, so he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I have tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone here to me. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer them that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be my son Jonathan, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is with your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little of the honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take this long and difficult passage, that you would wrap our minds and our hearts around it, that you would use it to shape the world that we live in. 
You want to change us. You want to cleanse us. You want to grow us into the image of your son. And I pray that you would use a passage like 1 Samuel 14 to do that in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've spent two weeks already in 1 Samuel 14, and we read about the great victory that Jonathan and his armor bearers started. They attacked the Philistine garrison that was deep in Israeli territory, and they won a victory over it. And the Philistines, because they were so afraid, and it was such a shock that the garrison was taken, they have begun to flee westward back to their land. Now, strategically speaking, what you do immediately after a battle is just about as important as what happens in the battle itself. If you allow the Philistines to get back to their land, which is on the coast, and regroup and rearm themselves, then they live to fight another day, and Israel is in the exact same situation they were before. But if you will pursue the Philistines and you will strike their military to the core, then you stop them from being a threat to your men. And so this passage tells about those critical hours immediately after taking of the Philistine garrison. When we read this story, it's deja vu. We saw a pattern in 1 Samuel 13, the previous chapter, that had Jonathan, Saul, and then the people of Israel. Jonathan, he, he strikes a victory, he assassinates a Philistine, and then Saul comes along and he makes this blunder. He doesn't wait for Samuel to come, he makes the sacrifice without Samuel, and the people of Israel, they bear the distress for Saul's bad decision. That exact same thing happens in the very next chapter, chapter 14 that we just read. Jonathan, he strikes this great victory. Saul comes in and he makes this foolish vow for the people not to eat until he is avenged. And the Israelites, the people of Israel, they're the ones that need to bear the weight of the distress. But there's more to this contrast between Jonathan and Saul than good and bad leadership principles. There's so much more at stake between these two men and what's happening in Israel than just that. Because as we said for the last two weeks, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they live in the world that Jesus won. That they, even though Jesus will not come for another thousand years, even though they don't know the details of the gospel, intuitively they live in this world in which Jesus has won because they believe that God is a God who loves his people, who intervenes for his people, and will save his people. So when Jonathan acts in radical faith, when his armor bearer acts in radical friendship, they're living in this world that Jesus has won, but Saul is doing the opposite of that. Saul is a very complex character. Saul is a man who will darken over time. But right now, if his son is living in the world that Jesus has won, Saul himself is living in the world that Satan is losing. That's what we're going to talk about today. And before we do, I want to clarify something. We're going to talk about Saul dabbling in this world that Satan has won, Saul turning in on himself. But the question we're not asking today is this, is Saul saved? Is Saul born again? Is he a believer? The reason we're not asking that question, it's an eternally important question to Saul, but it can be a distraction to us. Because if we can get Saul kind of out of the camp of the born again and into the camp of pagans, then we can dismiss some of the things that he does, right? Because we can always say, well, the reason Saul does this is because he doesn't know God. The reason he's acting this way is because he's not a believer and he doesn't understand the love of God for him and what God's doing in the world. And that becomes a distraction that lets us dismiss a chapter like this instead of being a warning for our instruction in this intense spiritual battle that we now fight in. It becomes a quaint history lesson about Saul. 
We'll look at Saul and the bad things he did and what became of him. Fortunately, we're not like him. 1 Samuel 14 is not going to go quietly. It's not going to allow itself to be relegated to that distinction. Every misstep of Saul, every way in which he bends the world in on himself, is a warning shot across the bow at the complacency in our lives, whether we are a Christian or not. Saul is living in the world that Satan is losing. Here's what's so intriguing about that world. Here's what's so intriguing about Satan as a villain. This is what makes him different than almost any other villain that you can imagine. I don't know if you're a DC Comics kind of person or a Marvel Comics kind of person, but whatever villain you have in your mind right now, Satan is different on this point. Satan is not interested in directing attention and worship to himself. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, in his temptation with Jesus, he asked Jesus to bow down to him. In Revelation, he will set up an antichrist and direct worship to him. But in general, Satan himself is content to masquerade as an angel of light. He's content also to linger in the shadows. He's fine not to be the object of worship as long as we will become our own objects of worship. Satan's fine in the garden to play the role of the serpent as long as you and I will desire to be like God. That is exactly what is happening to Saul in this chapter. Saul is beginning to live in the world that Satan is losing. That world turns in on itself and Saul becomes the center of his world. And that has disastrous consequences for all of his relationships. His relationship with God, his relationship with other people, and ultimately his relationship with himself. And those are the three things we're going to study today as we look at this passage. Let's talk about Saul's relationship with God and where it stands in 1 Samuel 14. How does living in the world that Satan is losing, how does putting himself at the center and seeing this world turn in on itself, how does that affect Saul's relationship with God according to this text? In chapters 13 and 14, you have four scenes between Saul and either an altar or the Urim and the Thummim. We read about those two things at the very end of the chapter, and that was simply a tool that the priest had that someone could inquire to God about. The Urim and the Thummim, you could ask the priest to take these stones off of his ephod, and he could ask a direct question to God, and you could either hear a yes or a no from the Lord, or he would not answer. And this was a way, kind of like casting lots for believers in the Old Testament, that they could discern what God was saying to them and how he was speaking to them. It's interesting that when you get to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, there's a scene of casting lots in Acts 1, but the moment the Holy Spirit falls upon believers in the New Testament and we have the living God dwelling within us, there's no mention of the Urim or the Thummim or casting lots because we now know with each other the will of God that he has for our lives. But Back in Saul's day, he has the Urim and the Thummim, and there's all this interaction between him and an altar or him and this other thing. And in each of these scenes, the altar or the lots are a means to an end that's not worship. Remember back in chapter 13 where um, Saul is standing there. He's waiting for Samuel. He has an altar and people are beginning to defect from the army. And Saul gets tired of waiting. And so he sacrifices to the Lord. He disobeys God and he does what Samuel should have done. And it's a great sin, but he does it because he's fearful. None of us see that and think that that's an act of worship. We understand that Saul is trying to move things forward. 
He does the same thing in our chapter, where the people, because of this foolish oath he made, as soon as they get spoiled, they start eating it and eating meat raw with the blood in it, which was forbidden for an Israelite. And so Saul, when he sees this, he rolls out a great stone and he has them sacrifice on that stone. And it serves as a kosher kitchen for his people that they can eat in a way that would be pleasing to God. And verse 35 says, this is the first time Saul ever made an altar. And none of us are confused that this is an act of worship. This is a means to an end. Saul is trying to get somewhere. Twice in chapter 14, he calls on the Urim and the Thummim. There's this this overwhelming theme in Saul's life that he is always in the dark. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what the will of God is in a certain situation. And twice he pulls out the, the Urim and the Thummim to discern what God is doing. And he's just anxious and grasping at what's happening and what he's missing in this scene. Now you think about it, and in those two chapters, that's a short span of time and a ton of religious activity. You've got a priest there, you've got an ephod, you have two different altars in two different locations, you have the Urim and the Thummim, which one of us, most of us don't even know what that is, and Saul's got it, and he's using it, and he's making use of all these things. And yet, I don't think any of us are fooled by this, right? None of us sees all that activity and says, wow, Saul must be a really spiritual guy. He's using all these religious items in his life. None of us are confused by that. All of us see through that and say, that's not spirituality. That's rote religiosity. It's easy to see that in the person of Saul. It's very difficult to see that in our own life, right? It's very difficult to to look at our own heart and tell the difference between religiosity, and this deep, vibrant spirituality because all of us, every single one of us, is guilty of building altars of expediency. All of us know what it looks like to use prayer as a means to continue a gossip chain. All of us know what it looks like to pull out the Bible in an argument to win it And it's not really about the Bible. All of us know what it looks like when a conversation gets too direct and personal about our own hearts to deflect with theology. All of us know how to use some of these religious trappings as an altar of expediency, as a means to an end. I'd be curious if we could take our lives, the past five years of our lives, and we could just graph it on a simple line graph. We could see the highs in our lives. We could see the lows. We could see the graph kind of move up and down. We could see the places that are very level in our lives. And just before us, look at the last five years. And then I'd be curious if we did the same thing with our spiritual disciplines and our act of worship. When were the times that I reached for my Bible? When was the time that I swore I would start attending church and life group? When are the times that I got busy in the church? And I wonder if you laid those things over top of each other, if they would not look exactly the same. I wonder that about my own life. Would these things be one and the same? In other words, do I worship? Do I read my Bible? Do I pray just for the sweetness of knowing God and being known by him? Or do I reach for those things when my back is against the wall or when I want to do it for appearance's sake? We know that there are very few atheists in foxholes. When somebody's back is against the wall, they reach for God. My question is, are there Christians on level ground? Once we're standing in the mundane, what does a vibrant spiritual walk with God look like? Because this knee-jerk religiosity, when something happens and I need to grasp at one of these disciplines to help me through this situation, that is a telltale sign that we are living with one foot in the world that Satan is losing. 
Let's talk about his relationship with other people. Let's talk about how this begins to affect and devastate Saul's relationship with other people around him. First John makes a profound point that I still don't entirely understand. He says you can draw a direct relationship between your private, personal, spiritual walk with God and your public, interpersonal relationship with other people. He says those two things are almost synonymous. The way you interact with God in your prayer closet has everything to do with the way you act with other people around your dinner table. You can draw a direct line between those two things. So nobody in our midst can say, I actually have this vibrant, deep walk with God. I just happen when I get around other people to be very selfish and self-righteous. I, I just can't help myself. John is saying in First John, that's impossible. You can't love God without loving the image of God. The image of God is right in front of you. Don't tell me that you don't love this person, but you love the God that you can't see behind him. That just doesn't work that way. As Saul becomes the center of his world, he becomes a burden on the people around him. Saul becomes a person who is life-taking and not life-giving, and people, like altars in Saul's life, they become a means to an end. This is a person to use for my end. This is a person to take advantage of. Look at this contrast in verses 23 and 24. The text says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and then immediately in verse 24, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. You just see the Lord lifting the burden of the people of Israel, and you see Saul, who is in a different world, putting a burden on the people of Israel. Uh, Jared Kintz says this so well. He writes in his seminal book entitled, A Zebra is the Piano of the Animal Kingdom. That's a book I haven't had the chance to read yet. But this is great. He says, I love teamwork. I love the idea of everyone rallying together to help me win. (laughs) Isn't that a great quote? That's essentially what Saul is doing here. He's asking for people to rally together to help him win. And he does this much by putting his word at the fore. I make this vow that nobody should eat until I am avenged of my enemies. I make a promise. I swear to God, if my son is the problem here, I will kill my son. Three times Saul gives his word in this chapter, and he is not good for it in any single instance. He has ceased to become the person that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, a person whose yes is yes and whose no is no. He is a man of expediency and his word is no good. He makes promises that simply aren't being kept. And at the same time, the people who serve Saul, they see this. They're not naive to this thing. Their relationship with their king begins to cool. Isn't it this eerie scene where Saul asks everybody, everybody is standing there, what's going on? What's the problem? Why is God not answering the Urim and the Thummim? And there was a bunch of people who had been there who had watched Jonathan break the vow and eat the honey. Not a single man, woman, or child answers Saul. Nobody's going to tell Saul what's happening. And once again, Saul is in the dark. He doesn't doesn't know, and people have cooled towards him. Saul swears to God that he will put to death his son and every single person in Israel stands up against him and says, we're not going to do that today. This man has brought our victory. We are going to ransom him and you will not have your day and you will not have your word. They all stand against Saul and you watch this tension and this friction and this breakdown where Saul is living in this world that Satan is losing. He's dabbling in this world that turns in on itself, and it puts him at odds with all of the people that he serves alongside. 
Well, lastly, the last place that this begins to affect Saul is in his relationship with himself. The world that Satan is losing is a world that bends in on itself. It's a world in which we put ourselves in the center and we define the world and what happens in the world around ourselves and what is happening to us in any given moment. Two weeks ago, I uh, wrapped up things here on Sunday morning and I went out to my car. We're here all morning. We cleaned up after the service and I got to my car and I was ready to jump in the driver's side and drive home. And right at my driver's side door, someone had balled up a package of black and milds and thrown it at my doorstep. And then it looked like they had smoked every single whistle tip cigar and just left all the butts at my doorstep too. And I thought, This is ridiculous. I mean, I'm in here all morning and someone is out here leaning on my car door smoking an entire pack of black and milds. Then this person realized that I'm a pastor. I mean, I'm doing God's work here. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. And I get out here and someone completely disrespects me and just throws all this trash. I step over it. I try to open the door and it's not my car. (laughs) And I look up and there's a guy standing on the sidewalk and he's like nodding like, can I help you with something? And I'm so embarrassed. I just put my head down and get in my car and drive home. But my world is so much about myself. I didn't even have a scenario that that wouldn't be about me, right? I mean, I come out to my car and I'm defining everything for myself and it just never occurred to me, this has nothing to do with you. Your car is two places down and this is not about you. That's what this world begins to do. It begins to place ourselves at the center and we interpret things and people and events and attitudes and a word here and a remark there all with respect to ourselves and we begin to close in on ourselves. It's very eerie to watch this in another person because it's so true of ourselves, but it's hard to see in us. But you watch Saul the first time he wins a victory, his very first battle against the Ammonites across the Jordan River, and his knee-jerk response is to go with Samuel to Gilgal and to worship the Lord together. God has done this victory, and we worship him together. Here you have Saul just a couple of chapters later. When Jonathan is the one who strikes the victory, Saul says in verse 24, I am avenged of my enemies. This is about me today and what I am doing to the Philistines. His world is turning in on himself. Right in the very beginning of his kingship, there were people who who didn't want him to be king. And after that first victory, some people said, let's bring those people out who rebelled against you and let's kill them today before you. Let's execute them because that is mutiny against the king. And Saul says at the beginning of his leadership, far be it from me to do anything like that. I I wouldn't take the life of another person on a day that God has wrought victory. And yet just a couple of chapters later, when Saul is in that same situation, He is willing to take the life of his own son. Saul is defining this world by himself. He's turning in on himself. He's playing right into the hands of Satan. And if his world is all about him, that makes failure utterly difficult for Saul to absorb. Look at Saul in the end of this chapter. I think Saul, by the end of chapter 14, is utterly depressed. He has been outshone by his son, Jonathan. He's been undermined by his subjects and told them what he wants to do, and they've said no. And Saul is completely undone by this failure. He doesn't know what to do with himself when he's been shot down by his people. And he turns at the end of our passage, and he goes home. 
He gives up the fight with the Philistines. He lets the Philistines run to the west and get back to their homeland and regroup because Saul has completely lost heart because he was at the center of his world. And when he failed, that was it for him. And this is a decision that is going to cost Saul his life. The Philistines will regroup. They will return at the end of this book and they will be responsible for the taking of Saul's life. But today he can't even see beyond his own failure and his own world. This is the world that Satan is losing. This is a world that turns in on itself. It's a world that has disastrous consequences for how we relate to God and other people and ourselves. And this is the world that Saul lives in in this chapter. Now you take a big section of scripture like this that feels like it's nothing but one big bad example. What do, you, what do you do with something like this? How do you respond to a chapter that's nothing but just bad news and bad ideas and bad ways to relate to the world? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some help in that direction because he writes in 1 Corinthians 10. He's specifically speaking about the Israelites' wanderings, but you could expand this to the entire Old Testament. He says, I'll tell you exactly why these things are in Scripture. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Ever wonder why we open our Bibles and find so many bad examples? Paul is saying there was great care to write these things down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. You could take all three of the sermons that we preached from this one chapter and we could say very simply, friends, we should be more like Jonathan and his armor bearer and less like Saul. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they live in the world that Jesus has won. Saul is living in the world that Satan is losing. We should be like the former and not like the latter. And that would be true. That would be a true application of these examples for us. But if you told me that application, you said this is what we need to learn from this text, I would probably have to confess to you, I think deep down as a Christian, that's what I want more than anything. I want to live in the world that Jesus has won. I want to show that in my life like Jonathan and his armor bearer. I want to have radical faith. I want to have deep radical friendships. That's what I want. But I find myself again and again and again in the world that Satan is losing. I spend so much time with a world that bends in on myself. And in as much as I want the former, I can't help but live in the latter. And Christian, I would say to you, if that's where you are, that on the authority of 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. He is. God is faithful. He always has been faithful. He always will be faithful. If you and I find ourselves living with a foot inside the world that Satan is losing, if we're dabbling in that world right now, if our shows and expressions of worship are more show for another person than they are a true expression of our spirituality, if we've started to build relationships around ourselves where we misuse people and mistrust people and we are at odds with our neighbors, if we are beginning to collapse in on ourselves and define the world by ourselves, There's no sense in which we need to pretend that we have grasped the meaning and the application of 1 Samuel 14. We see this warning. We see it in our own lives. 
and we come to a faithful God and we confess it to him. Lord, I've done all of these things. I've lived wholeheartedly in this world that you have conquered and I go back to again and again and again and the scriptures say God is faithful. He will forgive us and he will cleanse us and just as sweetly, he will begin to bend us into the world that Jesus has won. Let's pray together. That's what we want, Lord. We want to kicking and screaming be bent into the world that you have won. A world that gets outside of ourselves, that sees Jesus at the center. A world which worships and celebrates and longs for your coming. Would you do that in our lives and in our church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.